I think that in a hundred years, we'll look back at some of the things we took for granted today and be very almost incredulous that we could have ever thought that it was normal that, you know, every home needs carbon monoxide detector because it's so possible when you're literally combusting a fossil fuel inside of your house to create such bad air pollution that you would literally die. Like that's the state of affairs today. And we just accept it because it's what we're used to. And I think that will change pretty quickly. Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro. And if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Welcome listeners to the 36th episode of Business for Good. As regular listeners of the show are aware, I view human-induced climate change as perhaps the most critical challenge that we are facing right now. That's not to say that climate is the only problem worth addressing by any means, since that's not what I believe. But if the ship is sinking, writing that ship has got to be a paramount priority, even if there are other problems occurring on that ship. So finding alternatives to the most environmentally destructive things that our species does, like burning fossil fuels for energy, raising and slaughtering billions of animals for food, and so on, should be a major priority. Fortunately, not only are these problems solvable, but there's money to be made in solving them. That's really a whole point of this show, to spotlight companies that have found ways to make money by actually solving serious problems. It's not about companies that just do less harm, but it's about companies whose very success helps to solve the problems that we face, including climate change. So when it comes to fossil fuels, renewable energy, like wind and solar, it's becoming cheaper and it's becoming more popular. But there's one type of renewable geothermal that I frankly just didn't know that much about at all, which is why I was so psyched to talk with this episode's guest, Kathy Hanoon, who is quickly becoming a rock star of the renewable energy world. In fact, Fast Company named Kathy one of the most creative people in business, not too shabby. As you'll hear, Kathy was at Google X, the company's moonshot factory, when she began thinking about how to remove the barriers for homeowners to convert their houses away from fossil fuels and toward geothermal instead. This investigation led her to start her own geothermal startup, Dandelion Energy, which has now raised $35 million, including from Google Ventures, and has already slashed by more than half the cost for geothermal installation, which in turn can reduce the greenhouse gas emissions of a house by around 80%. In fact, homeowners using Dandelion can actually pay no upfront cost at all and then just have their energy bill lower immediately upon conversion from fossil fuels. It's an impressive story and one more example of the power of a good business idea to help save the world. I think you'll be as impressed by Kathy as I was, so enjoy the episode and be inspired by her good work. Kathy, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Awesome to have you and really great to be talking with you. I have read so many articles about your work and I've wanted to chat with you for uh, for some time because I've seen uh, profiles on you now everywhere from it seems like Forbes and CNN. And I know that Fast Company named you one of the most creative people in business in 2018. So congratulations on that. That's pretty awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> so, you know, you uh, started this company, Dandelion Energy, out of Google X, but I imagine that a lot of people may not know what Google X is. So why don't you just give us um, a little bit of an idea of first what Google X is and what you were doing there? Google X is Alphabet's moonshot factory. So it's the part of the company that 
did projects like the self-driving car or Loon, which is their balloon internet company. And the unifying theme is, can we find big business opportunities that could create a lot of social value as well as economic value that are primarily driven by technology? So actually very relevant to this podcast. Cool. So what were you doing there? Like, how did you, first of all, how did you get a job at Google X? It seems like it must be a pretty, <laughs> a pretty coveted spot, but so first, how'd you get a job there? And then what were you actually doing? Well, I got a job there because I was working in a very different part of Google at the time, cloud marketing. And I was quite early on in my career. I'd been at Google for about a year or two, and I had come to Google pretty soon after I graduated from undergrad. So um, I was doing this cloud marketing job and one of my friends who was doing marketing for X said he was switching to a different role and invited me to apply for his old role. And, um, the hiring process was happening very quickly. I happened to be going to Hawaii the next day on vacation. <laughs> so I did my interview for the job at X having just come back from a surfing lesson in Hawaii with my <laughs> friends and my hair was wet and it felt very unprofessional. But looking back, I think, um, I couldn't have staged, uh, an interview that would like allow me to sort of more perfectly capture the ethos of X. So it ended up working out really well and I got the job. And then over time I switched from marketing to, um, doing what's called rapid evaluation, which is the team that tries to come up with new projects for X to pursue. Hmm. And uh, geothermal energy turned out to be one of those projects for you? It did. So it started um, as just an investigation into could geothermal heat pumps solve this giant problem we have of you know, the huge fraction of fossil fuel emissions that come from heating buildings. And one thing led to another, and it turned out that there was a great opportunity to actually run this company as a startup as opposed to an um, Alphabet company. So um, luckily, Alphabet gave me their blessing, and my co-founder, James, and I were able to spin it out as its own company. Very cool. So uh, let's just back up, though, just a little bit, Kathy, because I would imagine that, you know, there may be a lot of folks who don't even know how geothermal works. So, you know, first, you, you talk about the greenhouse gas emissions that are coming from cooling and heating buildings and homes. What are the primary sources of energy that we're using to do that right now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, there are hundreds of millions of furnaces and boilers that um, combust fossil fuels in order to provide heating for buildings. So most buildings in the United States and elsewhere use fossil fuels for heating today. And um, these emissions are particularly challenging because it's not like you can put a wind farm on the grid and help the situation. Like these are just points, what we call point source emissions. So it's like one furnace in one house that burns oil, natural gas, or propane um, times 100 million, <laughs> you know? So um, it's kind of similar to cars. We have all these cars on the road that are individually combusting fossil fuels. So you can think of the movement towards replacing all these fossil fuel-powered um, furnaces and boilers to the movement we see in cars where we have electric vehicles 
really taking off and replacing traditional combustion engines. Mm, very cool. So that's the problem is that all of us are basically all of us are using fossil fuels to heat our homes and our buildings and to cool them. And uh, the solution you're saying, I mean, I, I presume the solution is many renewables, but you're most enthusiastic about geothermal. So what is geothermal energy and why are you so psyched up about it? Yes. So geothermal is a type of heat pump. Um, and I'll explain a little bit what a heat pump is, but geothermal basically is just low grade heat that is in the shallow underground. So the sun shines on the earth every day. A lot of that heat is absorbed into the earth, which acts sort of as a giant sponge for that just low grade heat. And, um, you can actually suck that heat out of the ground and use it to heat a house. And you can take heat out of the house and put it into the ground to cool the house, to provide air conditioning. Um, and that's what a geothermal heat pump does. It just uses the energy that's already there right below every single building to heat the building. And then it can actually run in reverse and reject heat from the building into the ground. And it sounds a little bit, um, fancy or like fanciful, I think, but it's actually quite simple. So let me describe first what it physically looks like. And then I'll just explain how we're all actually very familiar with heat pumps already, even if we don't know it. So what our system looks like is there's what's called a heat pump, which basically looks like a furnace. It's about the same size and it goes where the furnace used to be. Um, that heat pump is connected to ground loops, what are called ground loops, which are in the yard. So a ground loop is an inch and a quarter U-bend plastic pipe. And what I mean by that is it's, think of an inch and a quarter pipe that is shaped like a bobby pin kind of. So it goes all the way down, then there's a hairpin turn and it comes all the way back up. This pipe is very thin but it actually is very long. So it goes very deep into the ground, usually between 300 and 500 feet into the ground. And you cannot see it um, just looking at the yard because it's under the yard. So it's invisible. Um, that ground loop is connected with a short horizontal pipe into the house so that it can connect to the heat pump that's sitting where the furnace used to be. And through that pipe, there just is circulating water. So the water is in a closed loop. It's just constantly going down into the ground, coming back up, going into the heat pump and doing that loop endlessly. That water is just plain water and it has a touch of propylene glycol in it, which acts as an antifreeze. So the water doesn't freeze, but that's it. That's, um, that's what the system is. So it's actually quite simple, very few moving parts, which makes it not require a lot of maintenance. Refrigerators and air conditioners are heat pumps. They're actually machines that are very common, even though we don't call them that. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, so, Kathy, if it's so simple, why is it so expensive to have geothermal energy installed right now? Like, if I wanted to have, you know, switch my house over to geothermal, how, how much would it cost me? Not if I'm using dandelion, but if I'm going to go conventional geothermal. Conventionally, geothermal has costed anywhere from sixty to a hundred thousand plus dollars. So it's been yeah. quite expensive, as you're saying. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, one is it's a tech; it's a product that's been um, tailored to the wealthy. So 
um, every stage in the value chain has a lot of markup Hmm. and the product tends to be very customized to each home. So there's a lot of like hand done engineering work and, um, not a whole lot of price pressure to make it less expensive. You know, a lot of these companies that have traditionally installed these systems, they tend to be very small companies that only install maybe a dozen of these a year. And so those companies need to make enough money on each one to survive, even if they're only doing a few. So it's really led to a situation where these systems are only we only really see them in homes where the homeowner has a lot of extra money to spend um, and the interest, because not only has it been expensive in the past, but it's also been, it's required the homeowner to do a lot of research and kind of construction management almost in order to coordinate for the installation. So what is your innovation then? So it costs 60, 80 grand to, install one of these geothermal systems underneath my house right now. But if I go with Dandelion, it's going to be a lot cheaper. So how much cheaper is it? And what's your innovation that is making it so much more accessible? So our homeowners, about half of them pay um, with a loan for the system and half pay up front with uh, cash. So for the customers who choose a loan, it's about $140 a month over a 20-year term. And the system itself lasts from 20 to 25 years. The ground loops last essentially forever. So um, at that rate, homeowners are saving thousands of dollars a year compared to what they were spending on fuel oil, for example. Um, for customers that choose to pay up front, our system after incentives is about just under $20,000. So it is more expensive up front if you pay in cash than a conventional furnace. But the payback period is very attractive because it's so much less expensive to use it each year than a furnace. So the payback period tends to be five to seven years for a typical home. And the reason we're able to make it that much less expensive, there's like, there's many reasons, but I'll, there's some technology reasons and then some sort of business reasons. So uh, on the technology side, we've designed a drill specifically, um, tailored and designed to install geothermal ground loops. So wells that are geothermal drills, sorry, drills that have been used to install geothermal in the past have been largely well drills. So the same type of drill that puts in a water well. And these well, these drills aren't meant to put in geothermal loops. It's just, they can, (laughs) but it tends to be more expensive. It tends to be messier and a lot of homes, honestly, are they don't even have enough space for a well drill to fit on them. So a lot of homes couldn't get geothermal even if they wanted to with these conventional rigs because they're too big. So that's one thing that we've done that's given us the ability to bring the cost down. Another thing we've done is we've created our own heat pump that's really designed for bringing geo into the mainstream. So it's designed to be um, very durable lightweight. It has a bunch of sensors to monitor the performance. So we know how it's performing over its lifetime. And, um, that heat pump is much less expensive than the ones that have been on the market previously. And then from a business standpoint, we've just, you know, taken a lot of the 
middlemen out of the um, the value chain. So we're going more direct to consumer and giving the customer a better deal because of it. Well, that's really cool. So what's the, co- the cost savings per month? You say it takes about five or seven years to pay itself off. I, I presume that's because you're paying less in energy bills. So how much less can you expect to pay uh, on a monthly basis for geothermal as compared to fossil fuels? So when you're... Um when you install geothermal, you no longer need to pay for fuel oil or propane or whatever fuel you're using for heating before because you don't need it anymore. So um, for a typical home that's paying for fuel oil or propane in New York, which is where Dandelion operates, homeowner, you're spending $3,000, $4,000 a year on fuel oil. Um, and I guess like if you think about you have the let's say you you pay monthly for your system instead of paying up front. So you'll pay zero money down and then one hundred and forty dollars a month. That's about seventeen hundred dollars a year. So you're going from a three thousand to four thousand dollar fuel bill to a seventeen hundred dollar payment on your geothermal system. And then you also need to spend some money on the electricity used to run that system because geothermal systems run on electricity. So let's say you spend another $750 a year on electricity to run your system. Your total is still less than $2,500 a year with this geothermal energy compared to, again, three to 4,000 for conventional. And that's with paying no money up front at all. So you're like strictly better off in using geothermal. Incredible. So you're slashing your monthly costs uh, for sure. But in terms of how this actually makes the world a better place, how much of a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions is there? Like what percentage are we talking about here? You're electrifying your heating. So um, it really to answer your question precisely, I would need to know like what what grid is your um, heat pump running on, right? Because mm-hmm. that will that will make a difference. But I think that the way the way that you can think about it in uh, for the geothermal case is for every one unit, let's say, of electricity you're using to run your geothermal heat pump, you're bringing four units or so of renewable energy from the yard into the house. So hmm. the heat pump is extremely efficient. It's actually 400 to 500 percent efficient, which sounds like it should be impossible, but it's because the electricity isn't being converted to heat just being used to move heat from one place to another. Um, so you're, you know, when you are using your furnace, you are combusting a fuel to make heat. And usually furnaces are, let's say, like 70 to 90% efficient. When you're using a heat pump, you're using electricity to move renewable heat from the yard into your house at like four to 500% efficiency. So you're completely getting rid of the point source emission. And if you're on a grid like that in New York, that's actually like pretty renewable because of all the hydro. Um, Not only are you electrifying, but you're electrifying with fairly clean power. Hmm. So if I'm doing, I'm not a mathlete here, but if I'm doing it, it could be like up to like 80% reduction then, right? Yeah, definitely. In greenhouse gas emissions. Yes, absolutely. Cool. Uh, That's awesome. So um, 
What about uh, carbon monoxide? Because I, I know right now, if you're running your home on fossil fuels, you need carbon monoxide detectors, right? Do you need that if you're no longer using fossil fuels? You don't. You don't. Um, there's no way that a geothermal heat pump can accidentally poison you in the night, which is like another <laughs> benefit that geothermal has Minor over benefit. conventional heating. <laughs> I think that in a hundred years, we'll look back at some of the things we took for granted today and be very uh, almost incredulous that we could have ever thought that it was normal that, you know, every home needs a carbon monoxide detector because it's so possible when you're literally combusting a fossil fuel inside of your house to create such bad air pollution that you would literally die. Like that's the state of affairs today. And we just accept it because it's what we're used to. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that will change pretty quickly. <laughs> I actually have a whole list of things that I think 100 years from now that people are going to be shocked by. And I'm, I'm going now to add carbon monoxide detectors as the norm to that list. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think yeah. added, added to it are a number of things from um, you know, seemingly relatively small things like high heels for women, I think in the future will be, will be viewed as something that, uh, that was, uh, you know, an, an oddity of the past. Um, and then also, you know, basically almost everything that we do to animals today, especially in the farming industry, yeah. I think will be, uh, viewed with, uh, quite a lot of derision by our descendants. Uh, but there's a whole list of them. It would be a whole other episode, but this is really interesting to think about it. You know, I've never even contemplated why there is a carbon monoxide detector. I never even thought, oh, it's because I'm burning fossil fuels. Um, I just had no, I never even, it never even crossed my mind. So now every time I see one, this is, I'm going to be thinking about this. Um, so what other, uh, what other, um, incentives are there? You know, we have all types of incentives, whether, you know, sometimes they're like tax rebates to do green or sustainable things, whether it could be buying hybrid or electric cars or others. Are there any, uh, state or federal incentives to switch to your product, Kathy? There are. Yeah. So um, one reason that we started the company in New York is because there's a pretty good incentive in New York um, worth about seven to ten thousand dollars a home. And one of the reasons that New York is really incentivizing the switch is that 25 percent of the greenhouse gas emissions in New York come from heating, primarily heating in buildings. And so it's just like this giant slice of their carbon or sorry. Yeah, their carbon footprint. Um, and there's really not a lot of solutions to the problem. You know, you, um, to electrify heating, you kind of just need heat pumps. And so it's a heat pump incentive. Um, in addition, there's a 30%, I guess this year it's a 26% federal tax credit. It's the same one that solar industry uses. Unfortunately, that's scheduled to decrease over the next year or two, and then it goes away entirely. So that is a big policy issue that will affect the um, speed of adoption of heat pumps. Are, are, are there any politicians who are talking about this? I mean, right now we say this year we're recording this in 2020, so it's obviously a, a presidential election year. Has this incentive for renewable energy conversion um, been discussed at all in the political campaigns? It has. And I will also say um, I had the great joy and honor of going to the State of the Union a few weeks ago um, at the invitation of Congressman Paul Tonko, 
Hmm. who represents the capital district here in New York. So for him, it was the number one issue that he wanted to highlight during wow. the State of the Union because, um, you know, this tax credit is just so critical to continuing to make progress on renewable, like the uptake of renewable energy in this country. And so I think <laughs> a lot of pe- a lot of politicians are very worried that if it decreases and then goes away, that will be a huge step backwards. Um, so I think there are a lot, and it's a bipartisan issue too. Some of the biggest supporters of geothermal are actually from states like Oklahoma, for example, or Nevada, because um, you know it really benefits rural homeowners who want to use the energy that they already own right under their yard instead of being beholden to... Um, yeah companies, you know, that are importing <laughs> energy. So I think it has that that going for it, at least. Um, so I know that Congressman Tonko is a Democrat, um, but you're talking about some pretty red states. Uh, does this have support from members of the Republican Party in those states where this might be possible? Geothermal certainly does. I think that it benefits from having that appeal across the political spectrum. Because, you know, there are lots of different reasons to like it. The energy independence reason, the local jobs reason, and the clean energy reason. Um, Mm. So hopefully, given that, it kind of does unify um, people who otherwise do not see eye to eye on many things. Mm -hmm. Hopefully that will help Mm. uh, the industry gain strength. So, you know, many people are familiar with the fact, Kathy, that solar energy has come way down in cost um, over the years. Um, And I don't know if that is true for other types of renewables. I think it is true for wind, but I don't know about geothermal. So is that true? And if not, will it be true for geothermal? Well, for geothermal heat pumps, which is what Dandelion installs, it's been amazing to me like the company has existed only since the spring of 2017 and we've already brought the cost down a tremendous amount and I think there's still an like we've barely scratched the surface of what's possible so I absolutely think there's like an incredible since we're at the very beginning it's almost when you see the most rapid drop in prices. And that's really the mission and the goal of Dandelion is let's get the price point of these systems to be so low that it's actually, you know, a no brainer, Mm -hmm. you know, like homeowners, why would they choose to combust a fossil fuel in their homes when they would be so much better off both from a cost perspective, a convenience perspective, a, a health perspective with renewable energy instead. Yeah, that's really cool. So the company's existed now since you said 2017. We're now in 2020. Um, I, I presume that you are a venture-backed company. So uh, coming out of Google, um, has has Google Ventures invested? And, and how much has the company raised in all? Um, the company has raised about $35 million in total. Google Ventures is one of our investors. And um, we have a number of other investors as well. Um, I think one of the one investor that we've that we have now that I think has a lot of potential with us is a company called Lennar that builds new homes. So they're one of the large home builders in the United States, and they're really interested in 
the possibility of starting to build new homes with heat pumps from the beginning instead oh. of uh, putting furnaces in them <laughs> and <then> having us <laughs> retrofit them later. So we're really interested in piloting what geothermal could look like in new homes with them. Oh, that's really cool. Do you have plans to expand beyond New York? We do, yeah. So um, we're we're hoping to expand beyond New York in the short to medium term. And um, we'll probably first start by expanding throughout the Northeast. But there's a large market for this product in the Midwest and the West, sort of like <laughs> any any place that has cold winters and warm summers is a good candidate. Okay, cool. Yeah, I actually heard a story on the news uh, recently about uh, demand for natural gas going down, because, uh, especially in New England, because it's been such a warm winter. And uh, I wondered, you know, obviously it'll be a Presumably, it will be a hotter than normal summer. And so I wondered, you know, how much does that affect energy usage that we're seeing the warming of these winters right now? Um, do you have any thoughts on that? I think that, uh, yeah, I think we will. Con- I, clearly, we will continue to see more and more mild winters and warmer summers. And the price of oil is also very uncertain over time. But I would I would argue that it's more likely to go up than down from where it is today. So I think the cost to homeowners of heating and cooling their homes as a trend will likely not go down substantially, even if we see slightly warmer winters. Um, unless they unless they switch to dandelion, presumably. Exactly, exactly. I guess one thing that I do see as a trend is that a lot of homes in New York and New England don't have central air conditioning or don't really have air conditioning. And that has been acceptable until recently. But re- like I think most homeowners now who don't have air conditioning are starting to realize that they need it. And so one reason that some of our customers switch to geothermal is that geothermal provides both heating and air conditioning. So for a home that doesn't have it yet, it's actually a huge benefit of switching something that we see out of curiosity why do you call it dandelion well we you know the thing about heating and cooling companies is they tend to have very literal names so if we were to go the conventional route of naming our company james and i would have called it kathy and james's geothermal heating and cooling company (laughs) that would have been that would have been uh you know standard but we wanted to choose a name that was I guess, reflective of a new approach to heating and cooling, something that was familiar, but modern. And um, and we liked the idea of dandelion because it's in the yard. It's pretty common. It spreads. And um, there's a taproot to that, to that plant. So we chose dandelion. Huh, nice. Very cool. So uh, coming down to the end of our conversation, which I regret is coming to an end because I'm really learning so much from you, Kathy. Um, you know, if, if somebody's looking at you and they're thinking, wow, look at this Kathy. She has raised $35 million for her company. She's this successful entrepreneur doing something really good for the world. Um, I want to do more like what she's doing. Are there any resources that you would recommend, whether books or otherwise, that would be helpful for somebody who's interested in uh, this space or, or in entrepreneurship in general? The resources, a few of the resources that I 
found really helpful um, were just like the YC, the Y Combinator blog and some of their classics. I would read those, um, especially at the beginning. I thought Ben Horowitz, just pretty much everything that he writes, I find (laughs) so fun to read, but it's also, it really strikes me as useful and um, true. Mm -hmm. And then there's an author called Patrick Lencioni who wrote um, The Five Temptations of a CEO and a few other books like that, that I actually found very instructive too. And they're fast to read and quite easy and very useful, very practical. But I think more than reading, like one thing that would have been a temptation for me at the beginning is I am a person who likes to read about something before I do it. You know, I try to like study what it is. So I'm prepared. And I, um, I really feel entrepreneurship lends itself more to just doing it. You know, like reading can almost be um, counterproductive (laughs) for a certain type of person because it's easy to keep reading um, indefinitely and entrepreneurship more than anything else, at least in my experience, just requires a leap of faith and to just decide, I don't know how to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. And then you learn because you have to. Um, So I would also just make that point. Very interesting. Uh, I've read a couple of Ben Horowitz's books too, and also found them quite instructive. Uh, but it's funny you say that because I have so often thought this, and uh, you know, in my own experience as an entrepreneur, is that talking with um, other founders and uh, other uh, people who are running their own companies has been really instructive. Uh, maybe even more so than just reading about it. Um, but yeah. you know, there's no there's no substitute for actual experience. And there, there's, you just can't, you know, you, you can't learn how to play a sport without actually playing it. Uh, you have to be that's on the a, field. That's a great analogy. That's exactly what it would be like. It's like, you can read about how to be good at soccer, but it's just so much faster. If <laughs> you just get out there on the field, it's yeah. like, it might be painful and it might be embarrassing and you might be full of fear and anxiety and that's fine. Like just realize that everyone is when they start anything, they don't know how to do. Mm-hmm. And then you learn. And like, that's true about almost everything in life, including entrepreneurship. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, uh, you know, this is uh, what you're pursuing right now. But uh, as with many entrepreneurs, I'm sure you have lots of ideas, Kathy, about cool companies that you think perhaps ought to exist, but don't exist yet because nobody's doing them. Uh, do you have any recommendations for any listeners who want to do something good for the world by uh, by coming up with their own startup that you hope that they'll that they'll pursue? Well, this will seem like it's coming a little bit out of left field, perhaps. But one idea that um, I've long just been interested in, but I haven't looked into very deeply at all, is I do think that there's a trend towards um, more awareness, especially as women have, you know, careers and are expected to just, you know, have their career in addition to their family, there's been more and more um, people choosing to freeze their eggs and sort of delay being parents. 
And that's happened very recently. I would say over the last 10 years, I think there's been a very large shift in that behavior. So I'm interested in the fact that um, egg and sperm donation, it feels like it's stuck in the past. And there's going to be all of these women who have frozen their eggs that they might or might not end up using. So there is going to be all of these eggs stored in cryogenic freezers around the country. And there are so many people that want to have children but cannot for whatever reason. So I do think that um, while it would be a minefield of ethical considerations, and certainly like you'd need the right person to want to wade through all of that, there is a really big opportunity to connect all of the um, people who have, you know, egg and sperm cells available to those that that want them in a way that was done like carefully and with good intention and good execution so that you could bring that industry forward. Cause I, I do think the way it's run now, it's just like not nearly what it could be in terms of providing that service to people. Fascinating. Uh, on a somewhat related topic, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine recently uh, who um, wanted to adopt a kid, but it was, it's, you know, it's a very time and, uh, financially consumptive process. And we were wondering, I, I don't know really much about that field at all, but you know, what can be done to lower the barriers, uh, for people who want to adopt a kid? Because, uh, for many people, there's, you know, a, a very low barrier to procreate, but for, exactly. adop you know, for, for adoption, there's, you know, quite high barriers. And I don't know what can be done about that, but that, that might be another uh, thing to consider while we're on I the topic. As well. I think that is very related. And, and I do think it, it would actually be very good for the world because as you said, like all, there are many kids that would be much better off if, you know, great parent, potential parents mm -hmm. who wanted to adopt them at an easier time. And the mm -hmm. challenge would just be making sure that you lowered the barriers in a way that was protective as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is why it's such a tricky problem, but one that would be absolutely worth trying to solve. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for another episode, but that's a really intriguing uh, thing to weave on. But Kathy, I really appreciate everything that you're doing. Congratulations on your success with Dandelion. And uh, uh, my wife and I live in Sacramento and we do have a home. So when you are, uh, when you're out here, I can assure you it's pretty hot in the summer and we are looking forward to exploring what the options are. So let me know when you come out to Sacramento. Okay. I absolutely will. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Kathy. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.